take two men that happen to be cousins who share a common codependency on movies, put them in a room, and tell them to talk about anything film-related. The result? A corpulent cornucopia of cinematic scrutiny we call The Finleys on Film. Mr. Finley, good How evening, you, sir. sir. I'm well. I'm well. I'm doing very well. An exuberant creature of entertainment. Let's bring it. <laughs> okay, man. All right. Hey, I was reading um, an article recently that I thought was pretty goddamned interesting. Uh-huh. And um, first of all, I, I should I should say this that the the sort of focus of the article was Alan Funt and um, a show called Candid Camera, and I assume because of our show, because it deals mm. with classic film and so forth, that most people listening um, know who Alan Funt is. But I have no idea if that's true or right. not. And in fact, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. No, well, it was like one of the, it's, it was like one of the first prank shows. I could think of like it was punk. like out in the sixties. Yeah, a lot like a lot like punk. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I would say that people are familiar with it in the sense that that kind of show has never gone away since. Well, and you might even say it's like the beginning of reality TV, like the sure. like where we went away from game show to reality TV, that sort of murky middle ground, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. So it started with Alan Funt was this guy. He was in the the, the Signal Corps of the Army, which mm-hmm. had to do with I guess communications, and yeah. mm-hmm. which meant that he had time to sort of um, I guess be inventive and, and deal with language and ideas and so forth. And so one of the things that happened after he got out of the Sigma Corps in the Army was that he started this um, show on the radio, actually. It was called Candid Microphone. Uh-huh, right. And so I don't know how mm. they hid these microphones. It's like that, that episode from <laughs> The Simpsons with a gigantic hat and the microphone in it or something. <laughs> there's really huge plants everywhere in this in, place. In fact, somewhere in the article, actually, there's someone who was alive when it was written, like a, a co-producer back then of, of Candid Microphone, and he said like they had to like carry around um, a suitcase that weighed like 60 pounds with all the recording equipment, somehow like pass it off, like they're just, yeah, just carrying this gigantic suitcase of <laughs> have a back injury and so forth. But it was like, wow. it was yeah. like, you know, he would, it was like, um, you know, pull situations on people. And so, you know, mm-hmm. one of it was like, um, uh, uh, they got a wife in on the act and it was like, um, um, could she record her husband, um, her trying to wake him up in the morning? Uh-huh. And, he, you know, it's like you get the real husband, like, buzz off, will ya? I'd be happy if you'd just get the <laughs> hell out of here. Go make some coffee. And she's like, of course, because she knows she's being recorded. It's like she's this really sweet <laughs> wife. Course, and, right. and so people were um, a little bit upset with it, too. Like, the show didn't really take off as a radio show because... Um, it was divided. Some people found it hilarious, but some right. people thought it was just kind of intrusive and mean. Mean spirited, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was something to do with I the time. I, I still think it could be considered that. I just don't yeah. think we we see them that way. Like, the whole reality show thing, the way it's sort of it's sort of blown up. Yeah, I don't think we have that notion anymore. Yeah, I, well, not we, sorry. I'm feeling like old, welcome to old Smith Smitty's no, front I'm, fucking porch. But know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like, do we we have the idea of like privacy or mm-hmm. sympathy for those who lose it? Yeah, and it could be also like a function of like the 40s and 50s, right? Like all the stuff that's going yeah. on with the war, and then like the the sort of like the Red Scare. Sure. I don't know. It could be a lot of things, but mm-hmm. but you know, he moved it on as television came around. He moved it on to um, to Candid Camera, Candid which camera. is the thing that you know people who know Alan Funt know Candid Camera, and, and I remember even as a kid, like. Oh, Hilarious! It was yeah. a great show. Oh, it's great. They had these. I mean, it was simple premises. Like a guy gets on an elevator with like nine other gentlemen who are Confederates who are in on on the gag. Right. 
And they all have their hats on because it's like the 1950s. Or and when 1960s. you say Confederates, you mean they're dressed like Confederates from the Civil War? Right. They're carrying Confederate money. <laughs> they all own slaves. It was really awkward. Oh, okay, good. All right. Just wanted to make sure. No, of course not. I'm talking about guys who are sort of in on it, right? They're actors. Right. And so the guy gets in an elevator. There's a hidden camera in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And like one by one, but like in a timed fashion, like five seconds apart, each guy takes his like fedora off and holds it to his chest until finally only our man is in the elevator sort of looking around and, and he decides like slowly to, to reach up and take his hat off like okay that's what we're doing right. and then one by one each of the guys like starts to put his hat back on and you realize like it's it's sort of a look at like how we all fear social conventions in a way right, right? this right, show right. like what do we do when we're the odd man out and right. you know, I, were, I remember one episode where one of the pranks and this is the only one I really remember yep. was they, they they open up one of those old newspaper stands wow what an ancient thing to say newspaper stands sure. <laughs> like newspapers they still have them and, yeah yeah, and they put a fish. They just put like a they put like a dead fish in the newspaper stand, and they just film people opening up the newspaper stand and oh. having to deal with a dead fish on top of the newspapers. Now that, that was it. It was funny. It's interesting. Yeah, it's really weird reactions to kind that. of a stupid, silly idea. But it's yeah. like, how do people react? And 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 so like, it's like improv of, anywhere now. Yeah, improv anywhere. That's yeah. a great. Yeah, yeah, if you ever like get a chance, like I think it's through NPR. They have episodes on on improv oh. anywhere and some <laughs> of the things they've done. Yeah, it's this idea of like catching people off guard. And improv anywhere, by the way, has also been called out for. Are you surprising or mean? Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that sort of changed with Candid Camera was that um, that Alan Funt um, introduced the reveal, which right. is to say, he used to just play tricks on people and then they'd be on television. Mm-hmm. But in this one, you know, he came up with this idea like in the mid sixties of let me create this sort of like prank on people and then announce to them, Hey, smile, you're on candid camera. And he would hold them in place, you know, and sort mm-hmm. of force them to, and you'd see this range of emotions happening right. on the person's face. Right. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the person would go from like kind of angry and like embarrassed to finally, when he said smile, they would do it every time they would actually smile and like realize that they're not being taken advantage of, but right. they're, they're being laughed at, but also with. With at this point, yeah. From this point forward, with. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, it was just an interesting show. And, and so w- one of the things yeah, I was yeah, reading was, was really this uh, weird event that happened with Alan Fund hmm. where he and his wife and his daughter were on a trip, a plane trip from New York to Miami. Oh, were, sorry about that. Why? Well, it's Miami. Good I've never God. been to Miami. Nah, yeah, I know, but I judge it from white suits, I played Vice Cuban City. Cigars. I played Vice City, and I went Fair and enough. I've seen what's his name. Uh, the, the, uh, what are you talking Scarface, about? Scarface. Oh, yeah. I've seen Scarface. That's all yeah. I need to know about Miami. Fair enough. So they're on this plane, you know, Pan Am or something, from New York to, to Miami, and wow. um, what a reference! <laughs> and um, they're on a flying newspaper stand called Pan, Am, Pan American <laughs> Airlines. Okay. And this guy gets up and he pulls out a knife on the plane and holds it to one of the flight attendants, or I guess it would say stewardess back then, her throat. Right. And sort of marches her huh. to the front to the cockpit with this knife around her throat. And of course, people on the plane are like panicking, and, right. and he's he doesn't speak English and he's saying Cuba, Cuba. He wants to go. He wants a plane to land in Cuba instead of Miami. Right, okay. And so people are in this sort of general panic. So let's back up really quickly and go, like, this happened a lot in the late 60s, early 70s. This is when people, like, the people hijacked airplanes to go other places that the airplane wasn't intended to go. It was like Uber. Yeah, right, basically. That's what it was, yeah. It was like Uber for uh, people people who wanted to go to to, uh, Cuba or uh, Zaire. It was a prop plane. It was Lyft. Got it. Okay. Okay. So so this is happening. Wait, no other way around. 
Uh, maybe. So Alan Funt is, is there with his family, and, and mm-hmm. everyone on the, on the plane is sort of freaked out about this, I mean, clearly, about yeah. this event. Yeah. And, and, you know, they knock on the cockpit door, and, the, and I, the, the pilot says he was expecting, like, that's the time when the stewardess would usually come in and give him his snack and coffee or who right. knows what. Or <laughs> right. And he opens the door, and it's like, holy shit. So he goes over to the loudspeaker and says, we have a gentleman here who wants to land in Cuba, and that's where we're going. Right. Which is, I think, the nicest way to say, like, we've been hijacked, yeah, right? cheers. So there's a woman like, I don't know, in like 4G or something, and she looks over and she sees Alan Funt. And right. all of a sudden, oh, she gets the God. idea like, wait a <laughs> minute here. I know that this is Alan Funt. Oh, no. This is a big gang. And she starts to whisper, and it goes to get around the plane. And pretty soon, the whole plane is convinced that this is actually just some sort of elaborate candy, candy, candy camera, camera setup. Right, right. Now, the only person oh, that's, shit, yeah. well, Alan Funt's family, oh my God, but Alan crazy. Funt is just sitting like, oh no, <laughs> like, what, what has my life come to? We're like one rash act away from all fucking <laughs> dying because these people don't know it's not a joke. He sees a priest like an wow. aisle too, and he goes over to the priest and kind of begs him like, father, you have to help me. And the priest is like, you're not going to get me, oh, Alan Funt. Oh, so nobody Lordy. believes him. And he, he starts to get this idea like, I think I'm going to have to, Alan Funt, I'm going to have to like, like, you know, United Flight 93 this motherfucker like I'm gonna have Let's to like roll. whatever and, and a, a stewardess has to seize what he's doing and has to like no Mr. Fun don't try that mm. we're just gonna land in Cuba so they, they take the plane to Cuba instead of Miami and by the time they land in Cuba and like the Cuban Salute. National Guard is like surrounding the plane people, <laughs> people are, getting, are in on it right? they're getting oh, the idea the like fuck? maybe this isn't a candid camera mm-hmm. and, and they deplane and they, it's a whole sort of police action and now everyone on the plane is super super pissed <laughs> right, at Alan Fun right. Mm. And as they, they, they're deboarding the plane, they're like, go fuck yourself, <laughs> Funt. And I think later on, I think some of them actually sued him, if I'm not correct. If I mean, yeah, I believe some of them actually took him to court. I would not be surprised if oh, that yeah, happened. Oh, yeah, they were super enraged. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> assholes. Anyway, what, is, what does all this have to do with today's oh, episode? Fine I, question. Ask. Well, I know I'm kind of stretching a point here. I, I think I just wanted to tell the story for one thing. But another is, I was thinking about how, like, I think... Uh, not good literature and not good films, but like the great literature and the great films, what they do is they take us from one situation to its like opposite, to its foil, so that like a good, good like novel by Jane Austen, for instance, will have somebody who's good turning toward the bad, like possibly the irredeemable, Mm -hmm. right? And it will have... Uh, a good film will have a character who is essentially a bad seed suddenly becoming hopeful. The great example for me is like um, Edward Norton in American History X. Right, right. Like he is the most vile person on the planet and somewhere in there is a guy who's like funny, smart. You right. want him to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Or the narrator well, in Lolita. Okay, right. Yo, who is hilarious. He was strangely funny. And a child molester. Yeah, at the same time, <laughs> yeah. right. Which is hilarious. Which, 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 is, which is the thing. <laughs> you know, you get the, the, the putrid, hateful person with, sure. like the, with like the good qualities, and sometimes you get the other side. You get the good character who's got the, fuck, the fucking weird qualities yeah. floating around in there. Sure. So, okay, so here we are. Yeah. So we're talking about a movie. We're talking about a movie. And the movie is... <laughs> Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He was an English guy. He came to find the Turkish. Fucking God. I apologize right now for that hugely inside joke we just pulled. Fans of the Hollywood Knights will understand. Both of them. Yes, us. So. Yeah, so we're, so okay, so we're talking about 1962, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia David um, Lean. David Lean. Um, Peter uh, O'Toole's not his first film, but it's like his breakout film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Essentially, right? And this, uh, this would have been. 
been anyone's breakout film in this role. You could have pulled this off. Okay. Well, the question, like, I, let me. St- can I just throw some big ideas and then we can start dissecting them absolutely. as you want? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, one idea is that like it's a it's an ensemble cast, right? So Huge it's like you, you have like and a tremendously ensemble, a tremendous ensemble big cast. time. So you Huge have names. You have Peter O'Toole who 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 got the role, which was first originally um, uh, Humphrey Bogart. How'd you know? No, I The Corpse of Bogey. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, they thought about giving it to Brando, who refused it. Oh, okay. Then to Anthony Perkins, which I don't Whoa, know who thought that was a good idea. what an amazing concept that would have been. Then Montgomery Clift, who I like a lot, but still, oh, I don't think he would have oh, done would've a good job. Troubling because, in this movie. Well, there's something about Peter O'Toole that's really interesting, <laughs> because he certainly is like um, uh, a good-looking man, mm-hmm. but... His beauty is not exactly like Paul Newman or Steve McQueen or something like that. There's a sort of fragility to him that's actually yeah, kind of beautiful. There's in a, a weird prettiness way. to him. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. It, but in the in the romantic, I'm talking about the romantic period sense, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like he belongs in a painting or something, right? right. Yeah. Right. So so you have like Alec Guinness, oh, um, Anthony uh, Anthony Quinn, Anthony Quayle. Anthony Quayle, the yes. great Omar Sharif. Oh yeah, um, Alec Guinness, Anthony Quayle. Who, oh God, Jesus! You have you, you have Hawkins, oh, Jack um, Hawkins. Claude the, Rains is in this. Claude Rains is in it. That's the role of Jack Hawkins shoot. was originally uh, going to be given to Cary Grant. Oh There's so God. many like different ways that this okay. film could have gone, and 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 I guess this is true of any good film. Mm-hmm. But you feel like if it had gone any other way than the way that it went. It would have been ridiculous. Probably would have been because there's something. Harry Grant in the middle of this movie sounds um, absurd. Well, remember when we did Exodus? Like, there's an uh, epic film that I think all those uh, films, those worlds could have gone to someone else and probably wouldn't have made a huge yeah, difference. To right? Me. Okay. Okay. Maybe Lee Jacob. But anyway, so so we have that. Then we have the idea. I think of, and I know this is like a much overused sort of concept in film critique, but that part of one of the the sort of um, players or actors or roles mm-hmm. is the fucking scenery man is the geography and not yeah. and not even getting into like the way they this capture is. it which is right. its own mm-hmm. sort of like the a comment on like cinematography mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff but like the desert right which is a weird you know well you know that's actually like that's actually really kind of a because you know the movie better than i do i've seen the movie a couple of times but i've read mm-hmm. the book t.e lawrence's six uh, seven pillars of wisdom yes and that's true in the book too like that's one of the things that 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 fascinates him. That 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 drew T. E. Lawrence into this situation was his love and his passion for the people and the geography that he dealt with, and how all the you know all the all the great monotheisms come from this one area of the yeah. world where they all share this geography and this 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 fearsome geography. Well, the literal geography, yeah, which is which he called that's unforgiving. He called he clean murders. on the one hand, but yes, also sort of like beautiful and and murderous, like you know this <laughs> it will take your fucking I what, life. But the point, there's like a desert that they they called it like the boiler or the flat iron or like some sort of crazy part of the desert where mm-hmm. if you don't get through it in 20 hours, you're just oh, it's like just dead. a salt flat. It's like a straight salt flat of nothing but heat and death. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. And so, so it's, so, so it's in that setting and, and we could talk about how the cinematography is because sure. it is luscious cinematography. It's wonderful cinematography. It's maybe the best, it's maybe the best shot nearly like almost a, is it, a, is it a biography? It's like it's mm-hmm. like it's, it, it. Movies are about change and the change of characters. This movie is about the change of one character in particular, yeah. and it's the best shot, most cinematic version of that I think you can find. Well, okay, so so then that that brings up another issue, and we haven't even talked about the films about, and, and I think we could sort of do that even quickly at some point. But it's, but, it's about almost nothing. Okay. In, in a sense, I mean, in a historical sense, it's very significant. But from the yeah. standpoint of like the people involved, it's it's. 
Laid out, laid out. Well, okay, so historically it's about T.E. Lawrence. Okay, during the First World War, he was a, uh, he was a cartographer initially. Uh, there, in but Cairo. He had, in Cairo, he was part of the British Army. Mm-hmm. But he had spent years in that area, in the Middle East, before the war. And he was very familiar with it. He was, uh, he was a, a didactic, kind of a genius. He was into... These, into these cult, into cultures in general, and these cultures in, very specifically. He spoke Arabic, Arab, uh, Arab, like an Arab, and um, he just knew about the cultures of the area, which most people in the British Army, the British people are not. Um, they're they're kind of known for the chauvinism. They're not known for knowing a hell of a lot about the people that they're ruling. Right. This was that exception. This was that one of yeah. those people who was an exception. And so they took him, and they they got the idea of getting some of the um, the tribes, uh, the uh, the Bedouin tribes yeah. of Egypt and Arabia, mm-hmm. um, to basically turn against the Ottoman Empire, which was part of the uh, the Axis the the the, the Central Powers <clears throat> during World War II, World War One. Well, and not just and so to create a guerrilla war, but because because I mean they would have thought of that without him had it been as easy as let's just turn the Bedouins or the Arabs against the Turks because the Arabs themselves were, the tribal infighting was so crazy. It was incredibly intense. And so they see this guy who's got this sort of lowly position as a cartographer in in Cairo, Egypt, Mm -hmm. and like, oh, we can actually use this sort of interest that he has cultivated despite the fact that his empire refuses to cultivate it to actually sort of like like thread the needle and and sort of get the right Incredibly. We're talking like, we were talking tribes who have hated each other for for like hundreds or thousands of years. And have blood feuds, and his job was to try to sort of weave them all together, and he managed. He did, did an amazing job of that, actually. And so, the, so, so they send him out to, to sort of um, initially to, to Prince Faisal, so who's who's the leader of a right. sort of a, a, a prominent Arab tribe um, right. who's shown the most interest in fighting the Turks, right? right? Right. So there's that, but then there's this sort of idea. Now, Robert Bolt, who wrote A Man for All Seasons, was the guy who did the screenplay. Oh, wow. Okay, that makes and, sense. And according to Bolt, what he spent months agonizing over the numerous biographies of T.E. Lawrence, trying to sort of piece together the contradictory information. Right. There's and, a lot of contradictory, and T.E. Lawrence did not help with any of that. Well, and so finally just decided what I'll do is to simplify things is I will take the seven pillars, the T.E. Lawrence book. Mm-hmm. With the knowledge that it's fraught with truths and untruths, he's making up a lot of shit. So, for instance, there there is some uh, story that the whole sort of um, the raid on Aquaba or raid, what do you call it, the The attack of Aquaba. That, that Lawrence led it to a certain extent, but was so sort of overly exuberant that he pulled out his, his um, pistol and accidentally shot his camel and w- in, the, in the head and was thrown from the camel and, and missed the initial... Is that right? I yeah, don't know I mean, that, that I've ever read that. Okay. I think that... Well, so then that's, what do you do with that information? Right. Like, so so I, it, there's much more to say, but Tom, if you don't mind, uh, if, if hmm. you're at all interested, I thought that this could be kind of cool. And what it is, is it Steven Spielberg talking about that aspect of the adaptation of Lawrence of Arabia. What does he know? What does this fucking guy know about movies? This guy. All right. This is I'm I'm hoping our technology will will (laughs) see us through. Let's see. This is the equivalent of one of those old black tape recorders and holding it up to the stereo. The T.E. Lawrence story, which was important in other countries, was rather obscure here. So I don't think there were a lot of critics that were so politically correct to attack David Lean and the picture for historical and personal inaccuracies. But it was a whole different time in the 60s. Today, it probably would be attacked by individual journalists and writers who also would like to set the record straight, tell people the way it really was, and make a name for themselves. And I think probably the film wouldn't have ducked the bullet today the way it did then. 
I think it all depends on what history you're playing with. Are you playing with obscure history, history that most certainly Americans know nothing about, or are you dealing with the kind of history that's taught every day in schools? In a sense, there's a kind of revisionist history for entertainment purposes that I don't agree with if it violates such an important era of culture. I would rail against anything about the Holocaust that wasn't absolutely authentically honest. Mm. But there are certain movies like that that I think allow you to take artistic interpretive license. When you have a character who is such a character, I mean, he's so bigger than life. And I just don't quite think that film would have been as romantically poetic had it been just a chronology of the actual life of T.E. Lawrence. So, I mean, one of the things that I think that Spielberg is kind of like um, almost too honest about is that little exception he makes. Like, now, for the Holocaust, I would not have accepted this. But, okay, he's being frank about, like, his (laughs) own interests. Or or the way he's framing it is that, like, you know, the Holocaust is sort of, like, already in the conversation, so you have to be. Whereas Mm -hmm. if it's not part of the public conversation, you might have some... Well, I would Less say, obligation but I would truth? say that there's a certain amount of short-sightedness there because the truth of the matter is, is that T.E. Lawrence in, inadvertently, very inadvertently, and very accidentally was, was crucial to what we consider the mess in the Middle East today. Yeah. Like his involvement had his he not become involved in the sense that he did. At the time when he did, the situation in the Middle East, there's no telling what it would look like now. But it wouldn't look like what it does now, probably. Yeah, chances that's, are that's okay. So yeah, you're talking about he, he was a, he was an interesting thing, and I think what's interesting is Spielberg's talking about what like how a big big what a bold big bold personality he was. <laughs> Sounds like some ribs from fucking Chile's or something. Yeah. But the truth is, 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 <laughs> is that was what's kind of what makes the story interesting to yeah. me, book and movie, is that he was a, actually he wasn't a big person. He wasn't a big man, but he was a man who had to pretend to be big for, to, to fulfill the circumstances he was in, and then he grew into that, and then his ego went fucking bananas yeah. and took over, and he became, he became that myth. You know, um, he, like, he, cre- he started a myth almost as, just as a survival mechanism, that, that we, with the wearing of the, of the all-white hajib, like the yeah. all-white all outfit. That, was, that, was, that, was a very, that, that sent a very particular message to, these, to Arab people. I, yeah. I couldn't tell you, remember to tell you what it is now, but it had a very sp- specific significance to them that he learned to play in and then ultimately he grew into becoming the myth. Well, so at least in his own head. But in the end, even that didn't help. This is where I feel the like greedy fucking of Europeans yeah. just still ripped up the Middle East for their own good. Well, this is where I feel like the the, the film is is both fair and unfair, right? Mm-hmm. So so part of the myth sort of making there to justify because it's ultimately made by David Lean, who's who's sympathetic to the world, but ultimately also an Englishman, right? Yes. So 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 it. Part of the film is is you know they cross this sort of part of the desert that's a, the, the salt flat that's almost unsurvivable right. so they could sort of like mount this a, attack from behind right. and right? the reason the, the the attack is so successful is because everybody believes you can't you attack can't do it right? Thing, right so not only at somewhere along the night one of one of the Arab soldiers for lack of a better word falls off his camel and no one realizes it until daylight right. and it's like well fuck it he's gone he's right. a goner mm-hmm. and Lawrence you know typical of the mythology is like no. Oh, I'm going back for him. So he goes back for him. Mm-hmm. He manages somehow to, to fish the guy out of the desert again. Right. Um, and later on, 
it's discovered that there's been some sort of squabble in the camp mm-hmm. and, and between Arabs and someone has killed one of the tribal members right. and he himself has to be killed and it turns out it's the same man. Yeah. And so as a form of like, you know, demonstrating his, his commitment to justice beyond his personal feelings, mm-hmm. um, Lawrence or, or Peter O'Toole decides that uh, he announces that he will be the one to kill the very man he saved. And it's like, it's very poetic, but that's yeah. the sort of cheating part, right? Yeah. What, yeah. what I think is, is more honest about the film is the way it sort of bookends, right? Right? It's like it starts with, you know, the death of T. Lawrence, the motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. And it takes us through all the admirable parts. And as you mentioned, the parts where he, he completely loses his mind with power. Yeah. And to, to the point where I have to tell you as a personal reaction, I saw I, a couple of times watching this film, I have felt my own racism coming out. Let me just describe what I mean by that. It's like he's. In the in the garb, mm-hmm. he's leading the Arabs, yep. and he's blowing up trains full of white people. And I have felt myself feel like, <laughs> "What are you doing?" Even though, of course, his cause is a very righteous one. Of course, well, yeah. I mean, potentially, right? It's right. a very righteous cause, but it's like it's trying to sort of like not only play with the ugliness of his sort of being power hungry, mm-hmm. but kind of in a way make us not distance ourselves from the colonizing English. Yeah. It's presented to, to, to Western audiences, and I think we're supposed to sort of like catch ourselves going like, this traitor. Jolly you know? good, yeah. <laughs> well, come, on. come on. When he goes back to the headquarters and everyone's like drinking delicious you know, gin and tonics in a, in, a civilist, in a civilized <laughs> yeah, yeah. bar in the, middle sure. of, in the middle of Cairo, which is otherwise portrayed as a, as a, as a nightmare, yeah. jung, uh, you know, jumble of human, of human bodies, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a part of you that as a, as a Westerner, you, know, you just identify. Well, I think that I was thinking of the comparison here in, in the literature, the person I compare T.E. Lawrence most to, as I know him to this film anyway, is Orwell on like Burmese days and shooting an elephant and so forth. And I think what makes Orwell a little more sympathetic to people mm-hmm. when he talks about like being in that, that difficult situation of the colonizer plus under, but sympathetic to the people uh-huh. is that we get direct narration. Right. At, rather than a sort of like... Yeah, I don't know. See, I think... Because I think T.E. Lawrence is much more complicated than Orwell. Like, T.E. Lawrence had a guilty conscience, but it was, but it was a very personal thing on his end. It was about it was about like he had a sense of shame for having lost his mind to that kind of power thing, and later on, like he, you know, and, and of course his his actions did have repercussions, and he later on he basically tried to flee all of those things. He, he took a name and joined the Air Force during World War II. He was yeah. when it went by a different name, you know, like he he deliberately sort of sought uh, obscurity after that. Well, it, but also I think in terms of the context of the film. And then kind of didn't. And then, and then put out a book, right? So, you know, it's... In the context of the film, two things. Like Robert Bolt talks about, like the phrase he used was, I didn't take a scissor to this book. I took an axe. Like I had to just whack away oh, at Jesus, whole, God like, almighty. Areas. No, yeah, you have no idea, man. Because most of this thing is like a very boring account of him trying to get enough machine guns to make this an effective fight. Well, that's the thing. And that's that's what Bolt was saying was like, actually, you know, the film, no matter how you cut it, it's Mm -hmm. going to make him look like the charismatic leader. When in fact, there was a truth to that. But the bigger truth was he could get ammunition to these arrows, right? Exactly. But the other thing is that in terms of the film, like the, the, the distribution of the film, in 62, it comes out and it's something like three hours and 40 minutes or something, right? But, but immediately when it's released in the United States, they cut 20 minutes out of it for the sole purpose of being able to rotate more showings of the film 
<laughs> into nah. and then I read some article that but the first time it was shown on TV in 1972 <laughs> like 50 minutes had been cut out of it and then of course it had gone from letterbox to, to pan and scan to sort of like fit the TV so so it's like I mean all those nightmarish things you think about in terms right. of like the purity of the film but beyond just like the purity of the film because you and I are kind of schlubs who will like recommend things on YouTube and bad prints and so forth yeah, yeah. It, with this film it's a little different not all, not purely because well. of the cinematography which we can talk about in a minute but also because it seems to me like given that all they had to do to sort of make this a watchable film to begin with mm-hmm. to then look at a bastardized version of it is tragic yeah a chopped channel would not be good in this situation you know and if nothing else and but I don't think we, sh- we should sci-fi, uh, you know shy away from this the cinematography deserves Every bit of that toothsomeness. I mean, you should watch every second. There are it's notable so... scenes like the appearance of Omar Sharif from the desert oh, to this well. So great! It's like it's how long is that? Uh, it's like a couple of minutes. <laughs> it's and like you're three minutes, right? You watching this guy approach you out of the distance, and it's yep. magnificent. There's the scene where he's crossing the Sinai, and suddenly, in the middle of the fucking desert, there's this dune, and like at the top of the dune, you could see the top. You know the, the the capstan of a ship. Mm-hmm. Like, what in the fuck is that doing there? Yeah, oh, crosses the top, goes over the top, and boom! It's the Suez Canal. Or you—that's where you know it's uh, t- such you a know, great wearing the garb, wearing the jeep. He's, he's on top of a train that he's just blown up, and he's walking across the top. But the camera goes down to the desert to, to see his shadow walking across, and then you see the people not in shadow, but like his followers mm-hmm. in the flesh, following the shadow across the desert. Or the best one to me is when he's talking to Claude Rains. And he has a matchstick. He's just lit Klon Rain's cigarette. And he slowly blows out a match. And in a, this amazing sort of cross cut, it goes from the match flame to the flame of the desert as the sun rises. And it's just like startling yeah. how amazing this film is. Yeah, My brother it's... calls this boring of Arabia. So <laughs> I, I know at least one person who doesn't like it. But I think that it, it could be one of those things, honestly, where well, it is a long movie and it's not a fast movie most of no, the time. But it's definitely, I, I think you yeah. have to have patience for it. And I do think you can't split it up. You have to sit there and just yeah. watch this movie for three some, and a half hours. This some, is incredible. Movies, some movies, some movies require this, that kind of discipline and some mm-hmm. movies require and deserve it. This is one of those movies. Yeah. I, I think it does deserve it. I can't say enough about it. I don't know that we need to say more about it. Do we? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Tommy, do you have anything you'd like to uh, to promote? I thought I would just transition smoothly there. <laughs> <laughs> One world, man. We all love each other. That's I right. read, bro. No, mm-hmm. um, go check me out, uh, tomsmithcomedy.com. I try mm-hmm. to keep that up to date as far as appearances. Yep. Um, uh, Smitty, I, say, I need to get back on at Smitty Ha. Uh, at Smitty this is your Twitter account that's my Twitter account yeah yeah we'd yep. love it if you'd send us an email um, you can send it to uh, finleysonfilm nice. at gmail.com and we'd love it if you rate and review us on iTunes yeah alright totally. so let's end with a little tune my friend Lawrence Lawrence of Arabia he was an English guy who came to fight the Turkish god damn it